Hello and welcome to this special edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. This will be podcast number 133 for August the 5th, 2007. I'm going to dispense with the usual musical intro because I am away in Taiwan right now on business, but I have a special edition of the podcast for you. Some of the people on the Treks in Sci-Fi forums, which can be found at treksf.com, or treksinsci-fi.com. Both of those URLs will get you there, and then just click on the forums link. Several of the people on the forums have been working on a what's called a role-playing game for Star Trek. They have created their own starship called the Tiberius, USS Tiberius, named, of course, after our favorite Captain James T. Kirk, James Tiberius Kirk. And uh, basically the way this works is everyone uh, logs in on the forums and creates a little... Uh, post uh, based on a character that they've created and there's an sort of an overall ongoing storyline also taking place as well and the post can come you know you could throw up a post uh, once a day maybe every couple of days maybe a few in one day even if a lot's going on but it, it's a lot of fun and it's it's a way to kind of uh, immerse yourself in the star trek universe for a little while now what uh, some of the very ambitious and i have to say uh very, uh, I'm very grateful to the people that put this together, especially uh, Rick Moyer, who kind of spearheaded the project. What what they did for this special podcast is created sort of an audio drama based on the second season of the RPG game on the forums. Everyone uh, is in different roles, uh, and most of the characters in this that you're about to hear this audio drama are played by Rick Moyer. But there are a few others, Angela and Jen from the forums are also playing some roles, and Nathan Moyer, Rick's son, edited the whole thing together, and there's a lot of nice background music and sound effects and everything. It's very cool, and I am really, really grateful that they had a chance to put this together in time uh, to sort of place in the podcast uh, tree here, or whatever you want to call it when I'm away on business in Taiwan, since it would have been a little tricky to record a regular podcast over here. So without any further ado, I'm going to play this for you. Uh, again, just once more, I'd like to thank everyone that worked on this and all the people that participated in the RPG game in Season 2. Season 3 is going right now, and take a look at the forums if you're interested. And take it away to uh, all the talented uh, voice actors here that you're about to hear on Season 2 of The Adventures of the USS Tiberius. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the USS Tiberius. Its mission, to seek out new life and civilizations, to carry out the objectives of Starfleet Command, and to boldly go where no one has gone before. Gone. Voice actors, Jen, Angela, and Rick. Edited by Nathan. For more adventures of the USS Tiberius, visit treksandsci-fi.com. And now, Season 2, Family. 
brought to you by the fans for the fans. Incoming message. This is Hurano Pedro. Apologies for my absence. I recently choked on a groat cake. It was dry, and there was a shortage of squill syrup. My mentor beamed me to a passing lightship. I was unconscious at the time and was unable to inform the captain. Those pesky ships take an age. I was hospitalized in the Bajoran Fundamentalist Hospice and nursed back to health by the Prylars. Due to their fondness of chanting, my healing took a very long time. I doubt they passed on my messages, as their vow of silence occurs every 27th rotation. Is Breck still aboard? End transmission. Brex felt relaxed. The sensation was amazing. His eyes were closed, and all he could feel was an Andorian's woman's antennae caressing his blue-ridged face. A slight hum seemed to fill the perfectly silent air. It grew into rhythmic, gravelly noise. Stop that! It tickles! Brex giggled. <laughs> and reached up to brush the antennae away from his face, only to feel the sharp twangs of a feline's claws ripping into his blue skin. Breck snarled, No, really, stop that, Talus! Breck opened his eyes, expecting a beautiful blue female. Instead, he saw two large yellow eyes staring back at him. He reached out to touch the face, but at that very second, Meow! Mr. Mouse jumped away from Brex, nearly shattering a glass table. Margon stood above Breck, startled by the sight of his son in his quarters. Breck rolled his eyes. Oh, why am I here? I was just about to ask you the same thing. Margon picked up Mr. Mouse and stroked his fur, trying to calm him down. The last thing I remember was that darn bright white light. I was in a field with some of my customers from five forward. What's going on, Dad? Why am I here? Breck seemed annoyed by the fact that he would be in his father's quarters. What do these Iconians think? That I happen to be friends with the only other Bolian on board? Brex thought to himself. All I know is the captain's not aboard anymore. There's a briefing with Commander Quinn soon, and more will be explained then. Are you okay? Margon tried to smile, but it was very hard. I'm as good as I can be for getting transported around like someone's Tarkelian Felder beast. If you don't mind, I think I'm going to get out of your hair. Oh, yeah, scratch that. I'm just going to get back to five forward. Thanks for the use of your couch. You really should get a license for that animal. Breck started to get up and walk to the door. Maybe we should talk. Margon grabbed Breck's shoulder. No, Dad, stop it. Stop what? I never did anything. Margon looked confused. You stopped being my dad 50 years ago. Why start again now? Brex walked out the door. Margon looked at the floor. <sighs> Maybe he's right, Margon thought as he sat down with Mr. Mouse. The door closed. Brex looked out the window and five forward. He saw the stars in front of him. He glanced around the room to see no one. It was a quiet night. Brex tapped his comm badge. Brex to Jadan. There was no reply. Brex had not yet seen Jadan after the Iconian incident. He was surprised that he had not yet come to Five Forward. Computer, please locate Mr. Jadan. Jaden Marley is not aboard the Tiberius. The computer responded quickly. Brex looked out at the stars and started to panic. He thought for a moment. Maybe the computer was wrong. 
the Iconians may be affecting the ship's sensors. The door to Five Forward opened, and in walked Jadan. Jadan pulled his shirt down to hide the wrinkles. Ah, sorry, boss, I was a little distracted. <laughs> Breck smiled and looked at Jadan to see lipstick marks on his forehead. Ah, uh, you missed a little something. Brex took a towel and wiped the mark off his head. Jadan turned red and started to walk to the kitchen. I take it things went well on your date a while ago? Breck said with a small smile. Uh, you could say that. Jadan seemed nervous. Uh, you don't have to be scared, son. I know what that was like. The old days. <laughs> Brex picked up a glass and polished it. He knew that the replicator was capable of such a task, but he still enjoyed the fine art of bartending, even if it was old-fashioned. Jadan came back with a pad in his hand. Uh, boss, what exactly happened to us? Jadan asked. All I know is the Commander Quinn should be explaining what's happening, Brex replied. It's just so hard to think that these people have been hiding all this time, just to cause all these problems, Jadan said defensively. Jadan shook his head and sighed. Brex looked outside and started to speak. I don't know what they're up to. No good, I presume. Anson Starstriker was disorientated from the white flash of light. But what was more concerning was the fact that the captain was missing. What is going on? We go to the Iconians for peace talks. Now we're headed off for another assignment? Something is definitely off. The Commander Quinn would be in charge now, and he was probably planning to debrief the senior officers soon. Pity I can't listen in. You cannot interfere. This is not your time. Soon all will be revealed. Starstriker sighed aloud. None of that mattered now. All that really mattered was the next mission, which was leading them to the outpost. Whoa, whoa, what's happening? Counselor Sutter had just woke up from staying in the holodeck for a very, very long time. Hey, Counselor Margon. He wasn't there. Well, I better clock in. Counselor Margon, I'm here. Sutter then had some scrambled eggs and hash browns. Ah, hash browns. Ever since Sutter came to Earth, he fell in love with hash browns. After he was done eating, he went to the counselor's room and searched the Starfleet records. Whoa, what a bizarro Borg. <laughs> Guess that's a question for Commander Quinn. Who wrote this report on me? And it's from a starbase, not some random space station. Hey, I never stole anything. The only thing in the report that Sutter thought was right was that he didn't like wearing a Starfleet uniform, and he twisted too many rules on other ships. Instead of wearing the jumpsuit... Sutter wore black cargo pants and a jacket with a uniform color on it. Andrus checked the computer and saw that there were patients scheduled, so he left the counselor's office and went to the holodeck. Computer, open program number 5607. Enter when ready, said the computer. He entered an arena. The arena looked like it was patterned after the USS Tiberius, and the enemies were just simple robots. They looked creepy. Andrus called, Computer, Type of game? Deathmatch. Enemies. Level 1. My armor? Type 1. With flames, phaser, machine gun. The match will start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Begin. In 10 minutes, he took down all the robots and then activated his nice tropical island simulation. Ah, paradise. Andrus left and went back to the counselor's office. 
He sat at his desk and started playing a guitar. No one really knew he could, and he liked it that way. He played a very old Earth song called Smoke on the Water. He had the computer do the vocals and the rest of the instruments for All Along the Watchtower. It was not Bob Dylan's version that he played, though. It was Jimi Hendrix. Andrus loved those old songs. Computer, this is Lieutenant Commander Savril. Are my children aboard? The Vulcan asked as she slowly rose from the captain's chair. Naval and Marin are currently on deck 2, cabin 5. They were in her quarters, but were they alone? Where is the Betazoid Trolene? The computer's soothing female voice replied calmly. Charlong Trolene is not aboard the Tiberius. Had she been correct in her assumption that the retired teacher who had briefly served as the children's caretaker was somehow involved in the Iconian scheme? She called out to Lieutenant Peters. Lieutenant, I'm going to speak with Commander Quinn. You have the bridge. Aye, replied the chief security officer. Lieutenant Peters stepped around the captain's chair as Savril activated the ready room's door chime. Peters hesitated a moment before easing himself into Bell's command chair. It felt improper to be sitting there in the captain's seat. Captain Bell should be here. Shouldn't they be looking for him? They ought to go back to that place with heavily armed security detail. They could take him back by force. He sat on the edge of his seat, incapable of relaxing. Peters watched his hands as he slowly lowered them down upon the armrests. He gripped them hard as he lifted his gaze to watch the viewscreen's display of streaking stars. Enter, came Commander Quinn's tired voice. Savril stepped into the darkened room and found Quinn's silhouette seated on the floor in front of the viewport. His head was bowed and his hands were resting upon his crossed legs. She had interrupted his meditation. I apologize for the interruption, Commander. Oh, not at all. What is it that you need? He asked quietly. The shadows concealed his expression as he turned his face towards Sevril. Are the Iconians holding the captain hostage? Like most Vulcans, she was always right to the point. I don't know, he replied. He motioned for her to sit. She sat down on the couch near Quinn, who remained seated on the floor. Commander, forgive me for being... forward... But I must ask, why are we going to Starbase 157? Could we not call for assistance and go back to search for the captain? It was a rare thing to sense tension in a Vulcan. He had felt emotions coming from Severell several times in the recent days. She'd been under a great deal of pressure. They all had. What good would that do? His voice never rose above a gentle whisper. We were at the mercy of the Iconians an insect that has been flicked back to the Alpha Quadrant. He was right. At the time, they could not even manage to remain in the same room for more than an hour before Iconians instantly transported them to another location. She looked down at the shadowy outlines of her fingers. They were woven tightly together. Her cupped hands were held palms up in her lap. She quietly replied, You were right, Commander. They were silent for a moment before Quinn picked up where she had left off. The crew is distressed. I can hear their frustrations echoing in my mind. Sevril shifted her eyes from her hands to Quinn. He closed his eyes and drew a deep breath. What could we have done? His voice trailed off before he opened his eyes and slowly stood up from his seated position. Sevril kept her seat as she watched him rise. Nothing, she answered. There was a hint of sadness in her voice. Silence came once more before Quinn changed the subject. The child's caretaker, Trolene, 
He's gone? He asked flatly. Her thoughts were held too close to the service. Yes, but the children are aboard, and they are alone. Commander, I respectfully request permission to be relieved of duty for the evening. Of course, Commander. Please, tend to your children. Several stood, nodded, and walked out of the captain's ready room. Quinn sat down behind the captain's desk, took a deep breath, and tried to quiet the voices in his head. He did not tell Severell the entire truth of why he did not go back for Captain Bell. He struggled with it, but was warned not to tell anyone. Yet, if Lieutenant Commander Severell was to become Quinn's number one, he must be able to confide in her the truth of the captain's disappearance and their entire mission. Quinn knew that he needed to speak with his senior staff, but decided to give them some much-needed rest. They were not arriving at Starbase 157 for another four hours. He decided he would have his staff meeting the next day at 1100 hours. Sevril found her children sleeping soundly in their own bed. The tall Vulcan woman strode quietly into the small room that held their slumbering forms and knelt beside Marin. The toddler's breaths were measured and deep as her right thumb slowly fell from the corner of her mouth. Severil brushed a lock of wispy black hair from the little girl's forehead and kissed her cheek. Marin unconsciously raised a tiny eyebrow in response, yet never stirred from her deep slumber. Her mother removed the girl's shoes and pulled the blanket up to cover her. Then she stood and moved to the child who slept on the other side of the bed. Naval shifted from his left to his right side, his little face contorted into a frown as he muttered something low under his breath. Savril knelt down and pulled the boy's shoes off, then tugged the blanket up over his twitching legs. She watched him for a minute and then gently placed her hand on his until the twitching stopped. Though he did not wake, a small smile grew upon his face, producing two dimples. <laughs> she kissed his forehead and then backed from the room and bumped into the silhouetted form standing in the entry. Several startled and spun quickly on her heel, instinctively falling into a defensive stance. The quiet whisper that followed caused her to relax slightly. That's my girl. Nice reaction time. Great form. But you let me slip in behind you. What if my intentions had been uh, criminal? She knew that voice. It belonged to her husband. Yet David was on assignment for Section 31. How did he get aboard the ship? David... The relief in her voice was evident. I wish, the voice muttered sarcastically to himself. Actually, I'm a hologram that David programmed. Several keyed a sequence into the panel behind her, and the door of the children's room slid shut. I was not aware my husband was capable of programming holograms, she stated flatly. The hologram walked over to the chair, plopped down, and put his feet up on the table in the center of the room. He's not, but he has friends who are. Section 31 is full of smart people. Several remained standing near the door to the children's room. Too much had happened in the recent days. If you are a hologram designed by my husband, then what is your purpose? She inquired coolly. He smiled and nodded towards the door that Several had closed only moments before. I'm the babysitter, he said with a wink. The babysitter, Several repeated. Why didn't David inform me of your program? Because he knew I'd be adamantly opposed to one that could kill, he replied with a grin. I've been programmed in every form of advanced martial art that Section 31 has on file. I was activated before you left Space Dock and have been quietly keeping an eye on things. Where'd you dig up that old fossil you called the caretaker? You hired him to take care of our kids? 
Oh, sure. He was nice old blue hair, but he was always AWOL. By the way, where's that old coot now? Several frowned. She didn't have an answer for him. The retired Betazoid teacher, whom she had hired to watch their children when she was on duty, was simply gone. She suspected he was part of a group who was responsible for Captain Bell's disappearance. Our last mission involved beings who were master illusionists. You could be yet another of their cruel deceptions. Did they have something to do with the crew's sudden vacation? He asked sarcastically. Several did not respond to his remark. Oh, hey, I programmed the great water park simulation on the holodeck while you're all on break. (laughs) He nodded towards the children's room again. When they wake up, I'll take them there. David obviously gave the supposed hologram his own unique brand of humor in addition to his appearance and voice. He could tell that she still wasn't convinced that he was telling her the truth. You're a scientist. Run a diagnostic on me. He gave her a wink and then tossed her a tricorder. She caught it but opened her desk drawer and removed one of her own one that she was certain hadn't been tampered with. He smiled. Ah, you'd make a great agent, Severil. Better safe than sorry, right? She laid his device down on the desk and ran the diagnostic of their own. He was exactly what he said he was. A hologram. She closed the tricorder and looked up to meet his smile, which, before now, had only belonged to her husband, David. You look exhausted, he said. I'll shut down. You get some shut-eye. She watched as the hologram vanished. In the silence following the hologram's disappearance, she finally had time to realize how much she missed the real David. (laughs) Several awoke to the sound of children's laughter. The hologram was back and apparently entertaining the children. When the twins noticed her, the hologram stopped what he was doing and walked to the replicator. Vulcan spice tea, hot. After the replicator formed a cup of tea, he removed the beverage, pulled a chair out, and motioned for Savril to sit in it. Good morning, he said with a smile as he set the drink on the table before her. What are we to call you? She asked. We will not refer to you as David. His smile faded. Not a problem. Um, call me, uh, Dennis. Dennis was David's nickname in middle school. His basketball coach used to call him Dennis the Menace because of his fair hair and his tendency for trouble. The real David despised the name. His hologram didn't seem to mind it. I insist that the children call you that as well. Logically, he replied, then rumpled Naval's hair as the boy climbed up into Severil's lap and hugged her. She hugged him back. Eleven hundred hours came quickly, and Quinn stood in the ready room as members of his senior staff arrived and took their seats. Quinn sat down and began to speak. I know a lot of you have questions about what happened with the Iconians and where the captain might be. At this time, I cannot tell you the details of his mission. What I can tell you is that Starfleet has made me temporary captain of the USS Tiberius and Lieutenant Commander Severil, my first officer. We will not be going to Starbase 157. Starfleet has asked us to go to Altair 3. It's the third planet in the Altair system. Starfleet has lost communication with their outpost and need us to find out what happened. We'll arrive there in six days. Any questions? The counselor sat down at the table and looked at his fellow crewmates. They were all concerned, and so was he. The day before this, he had found out his son asleep on the couch, compliments of the Iconians. It had been very uncomfortable, and after he had awakened, and Margon couldn't stop thinking about it. But now was not the time to think about family problems. There were much bigger things to be concerned about. The counselor focused his thoughts on Commander Quinn's voice. 
We'll arrive in six days. Any questions? Yes, Commander, said Margon. If my memory serves me correctly, this system was the victim of an interplanetary war for decades. I read about the peace talks and the Federation's influence in the star system. Have you been in contact with the Klingon Empire about our outpost? An excellent question. If the Klingon Empire is not aware of the situation, they should be informed immediately. They, too, have citizens living on Altair III, and I am positive they will want to investigate. Quinn nodded to Margon. Yes, they're on their way now. We're to coordinate our investigation with them. Although the Vajoran was not technically a crew member, she was assigned to the ship by Starfleet Command to make sure that the regulations were strictly followed. During its mission, the Tiberius would be involved in an unusual number of prickly political deliberations. Starfleet Brass wanted a starchy, straight-laced law lover to keep the interests of Starfleet at the forefront of the captain's mind. Now that Captain Bell was missing, that person was Commander Quinn. When the briefing had ended, and all but Lieutenant Commander Severill and Commander Quinn had left the room, Avrick Newell entered. She sidestepped the last of the senior staff as they left and made her way to where the acting captain stood. Commander! The JAG officer wore a warm, friendly smile as she nodded to Quinn and Severill. They greeted her in turn. Her smile shrank slightly as she continued. I felt now was a good time as any to share with you the reason for my presence aboard the Tiberius. Before now, only Captain Bell, Admiral Watts, and Admiral Talbot were privy to this information. Because of the unfortunate events of our last assignment, and now that you are acting captain, I thought you should know. I know why you're here, Lieutenant, Quinn replied in his usual soft-spoken voice. Starfleet gives us difficult assignments, but they want a spokesperson to poke around with your investigations and micromanage our decisions. Micromanage? Avrick's usual cheerful countenance was replaced by a furrowed frown. Quinn nodded and smiled. She was a quick-witted, albeit quick-tempered young woman, yet her blend of duty and personality made him respect her. I like you, Lieutenant. His response surprised Avrick. But don't push your luck. You may be Starfleet's eyes and ears, but I'm still in command of this ship. He paused before continuing in a gentler tone. I realize that you did not ask to be put in this situation. This is your first assignment on a starship, isn't it? He walked around the end of the table to close the distance between he and Avrick. Yes, it is, Commander. Though I can't say that I'm enjoying it much. She replied with a frown. He laughed. <laughs> Neither am I. If you respect my authority's commander of this vessel, then I respect your assignment as my counsel. Of course, Commander. I have no intention of browbeating you with Starfleet law. I'm just an advisor. Her smile had returned. I'm sure you're a good one, Lieutenant. She nodded in response and then offered a hand to Quinn. Thank you, Commander. She replied. The Burrell variant bird of prey resembled the Batleth posed for combat, yet the Klingon vessel was there to help the Tiberius not engage her. Hailing frequencies open, Commander. The captain's chair was positioned between Severell and Margon. Severell watched as... Quinn rose from the seat to introduce himself to the Klingon vessel displayed on the viewscreen before him. Avrick Newell stood behind her at the auxiliary station. It was the first time she had ever stepped foot on the bridge and she felt exhilarated. Quinn could feel her anticipation as he spoke aloud to the captain of the Klingon ship. Commander Quinn stood and faced the viewscreen. A very beautiful Klingon woman appeared on the screen. I am Karen, captain of the battlecruiser Katar. 
Welcome to the Altar System. The Klingon Empire extends warm greetings and looks forward to assisting the Federation in its investigation. Thank you, Corinth. Your assistance is welcomed. We will rendezvous in three hours at coordinates 3565.1, Quinn replied. Until we meet in person. The Klingon smiled. Quinn nodded and the screen went blank. Quinn turned to Severil with a smile. Well, that was a little too pleasant, wasn't it? Captain Corinth is not too pleased with her new assignment. I didn't need my telepathic abilities for that. Indeed, replied the Vulcan. Quinn sat back down. We need to prepare all stations. Something just doesn't feel right about this. The dust from the surface of Altair Three mixed in the atmosphere to create a mass of swirling red clouds. The Tiberius maintained a stationary orbit with respect to the outpost on the planet's surface. Sir, sensors are indicating weapons fire within the outpost. In a matter of seconds, the image of Corinth, captain of the Klingon bird of prey, appeared on the view screen. We are detecting a conflict below. I am preparing a landing party of my best warriors. We would be honored if you joined us in battle, Commander. She tossed her head up and revealed a vicious smile as she waited his answer. Margon motioned to Quinn to mute the communication. He glanced at the communication station and then turned towards the counselor. Yes, counselor? he asked. I don't trust her, sir, Margon cautioned. He rubbed the ridge of his nose. We have no idea what her intentions are, and if what you are sensing is even half right, we could be in serious danger if we beam down there with them. Thank you, counselor, said Quinn. I'll take it under advisement. Right now, I need to answer our Klingon friend. But, Commander, I heard you, counselor. Margon was cut off by Quinn. Quince glanced again at the communication station, and the audio was turned back on. We'd be happy to join you. Please send the coordinates to our transporter room. Corinth smiled and nodded. Then the screen went black. Quinn turned towards his counselor. I apologize for my abruptness. I know Corinth is up to something. She was getting suspicious of my silence. I had to answer her. Counselor Margon smiled. Do you know what she's hiding? I don't. I tried to probe her thoughts, but she's been training and closing off her mind. Not many Klingons can do that, Quinn replied. Quinn turned to Savril. Put together an away team and report to transporter room three. But number one, be very cautious. Things aren't as they seem. Aye, sir, replied the Vulcan as she headed towards the turbo lift. Ensign Enoch, you're with me. Enoch may not have been a security officer, but he was decidedly Klingon. His Starfleet profile indicated that he was particularly proficient in hand-to-hand combat. Aside from this fact, the purpose for his away team selection was simply the Ensign's Klingon heritage. For whatever reason, the commander and counselor were each suspicious of Corinth. Several claimed no fluency in Klingon body language and believed that Enoch could provide her with the insight that she needed if the captain of the Kata was indeed hiding something. Lieutenant Peters and Ensign Manrique and Stormshield met Several and Enoch in the transporter room one. Peters passed them each a phaser as they all took their places on the transporter pad. The way team turned to face the Denoblian transporter chief, but before Savril could give him the go-ahead to beam to the surface, Dr. Peterson rushed through the doors into the transporter room. Dr. Peterson glanced at the commander in the transporter room and said, You're not planning to leave without me, are you? After all, there may be survivors that need medical attention, and if there's a firefight, they'll undoubtedly be wounded that I'll need to be attending to. We detected weapons fire on the surface, Doctor. Once the area is secure, we will request that you beam down to our coordinates. 
Severell looked down at the doctor standing ready at the door. Prepare for a massive influx of the wounded, doctor. I'm very accurate shot. Please allow me to accompany you to the surface. If we're met with hostile fire, you'll need an extra phaser. And if we're met by a mass of wounded civilians, I will need your expertise. Severell finished his sentence for him in an even tone. She chewed on his statement for a fraction of a second and then nodded her approval. Lieutenant Peters tossed the doctor a phaser as he stepped onto the pad, and Severell motioned to the Denobium transporter chief that they were ready to beam down. Glittering particles of light bonded to form five Starfleet officers within the outpost on the surface of Altair Three. The Klingons transported within seconds of the Tiberius away team. Their corresponding transporter coordinates placed them within the large complex in the center of the settlement. Upon materialization, the crews of the Kata and Tiberius drew their sidearms in preparation of hostile fire. Lieutenant Peters ignited the light he carried with his right hand. Its hazy beam revealed the bodies of armed civilians laying in twisted heaps about the facility. The corpses bore the scorched marks of a recent annihilation. Corinth and Sevril approached one another as the away teams united their effort to inspect the immediate area. Stepping over the dead of several worlds, the Vulcan and Klingon met in the center of the room. I am Lieutenant Commander Savril, and this is Ensign Enoch. Savril's introduction of Enoch was met with a sidelong glance by the Klingon captain. She growled quietly as she took the Vulcan's stolid expression. Corinth's striking green eyes narrowed before she turned them on Enoch. She considered the young helmsman carefully before replying in a curt voice. I am Captain Corinth. Commander, Lieutenant Peters spoke quietly as he advanced from the far side of the room. I'm picking up a biosign in the west wing of the complex. Quinn sat in the captain's chair and waited for a report from the away team. The helmsman said, Sir, we're detecting a ship. Quinn stood up. What? Where did it come from? I don't know, sir. It wasn't there a minute ago. It must have been hiding in the nearby nebula, said Ensign Lodgen. Can you ID it, Ensign? Ensign Lodgen ran her fingers across the helms panel. No, sir. It's not of any configuration in Starfleet records. Lieutenant Negumo, over the tactical station, asked, Should I raise shields, Captain? Quinn looked over at him and shook his head. We don't want to seem aggressive. Lieutenant Negumo looked concerned. Quinn paced the bridge and ran his fingers through his hair, trying to sense the alien ship. Try and hail them. Lieutenant Negumo yelled, Sir! They're, they're firing torpedoes! Quinn yelled, Shields up! And quickly pressed his comm badge. All hands brace for impact! I repeat, all hands brace for impact! The doctor could see the body sprawled all over the complex. The smell of burned flesh was overpowering. The damage to the bodies was quite extensive. Every cell within them had been imploded upon impact. A scan from his tricorder told him the energy weapons were the cause, and these particular weapons had been outlawed by the Federation due to their barbaric nature. The doctor pressed his comm badge and informed Sevril of his findings, indicating that it was extremely unlikely any survivors would be found. Peterson continued to survey the scene and record the damage with the use of his medical tricorder. Then he searched for anything that might indicate why this particular outpost was chosen as a target. Commander, the chief of security spoke quietly as he advanced from the far side of the room. I'm picking up biosigns in the west wing of the complex. The Vulcan nodded and signaled for Lieutenant Peters to wait before advancing. She gazed across the vast space within the compound in search of the doctor. 
His search for life amongst the multitude of motionless forms had taken him to the far side of the complex, and she could barely make out his shadowy figure from her location on the opposite side of the room. Sevril tapped her comm badge and informed the doctor of the security chief's discovery. Peterson here. I do not want to jeopardize the safety of the away team. The utmost care must be taken in our investigation. Please meet us at these coordinates. We will wait for you and Ensign Marquis before investigating further. On my way, replied the doctor. As Dr. Peterson and Ensign Manrique ran the obstacle course of debris and dead, two energy discharges struck them both in the back. The two crew members abruptly plunged to the cold stone floor. Though conscious, they were unable to move a single appendage to defend themselves from their unseen aggressors. The doctor's eyes met Manrique's. His gaze was stubborn and angry as he shifted in the direction of the away team. Through the gloom, Manrique could see the Klingon and Tiberius away teams progressing towards them, firing at the attackers. Beams of energy crisscrossed the darkened war zone, illuminating its once obscure contents. The anonymous aggressors provided cover for two of their own as they grabbed the paralyzed Starfleet officers and hauled them into a nearby corridor. With their hostages in tow, the shadowy assailants disappeared within the multitude of dark passageways inside the immense complex. In an instant, they transported off the surface of Altair Three, leaving the winded away teams behind in frustration. The ship shook back and forth. Quinn fell to the floor but quickly regained his footing. Photons full spread, Quinn yelled. Lieutenant Nagumo turned to Quinn. Sir, they're pulling back. Do we pursue? Stand by, Lieutenant. Quinn pressed his comm badge. Number one, what is the status of the away team? Commander, the aggressors have beamed away and they've taken Dr. Peterson and Ensign Marquis with them. What? Quinn announced. Stand by, we're going to beam you back. Transporter room, beam the away team directly to the bridge. A few seconds later, the away team appeared on the bridge. Helm, set a pursuit course. Quinn turned to Savril. Where are the Klingons? Before she could answer the commander, the communications officer interjected, Sir, the Kata is hailing us. Quinn nodded, on screen. Corinth's eyes sparkled with exhilaration. These piles of rotting foreshack will wish they'd never crossed our paths, commander. A fierce smile spread across the Klingon's female face. As you know, they've taken two of my officers. Do not destroy their ship. Of course. She hissed. Our vessel is currently cloaked aft of the Tiberius. We are maneuvering into attack position now. Once their ship has been disabled, I want the black tag who commands it and his cargo to myself. She tilted her head as she emphasized the last words of her sentence. The bridge of the Tiberius shook again as the aggressors fired once more. Shields are holding, Commander, reported Lieutenant Coran. Quinn looked over his shoulder at the tactical officer and then back to the view screen. A frown formed on Quinn's face. We'll talk about that later, Captain. I'm a little busy right now. Again, your help is appreciated. Now, if you'll excuse me... Certainly, Commander, replied the Klingon. Quinn turned and motioned for communications to be cut and then faced the Lieutenant Coran. Return fire. Target their weapons. Sevril fell into her chair as the ship lurched again. Captain, before they were taken, the doctor mentioned the civilians' wounds were made with outlawed weapons. It is my assessment that we are dealing with marauders. I believe you mean murderers, replied Quinn, 
as the bridge lurched again. Dr. Peterson awoke in what was little more than a small, empty room, bare of the normal tapestries that one might expect to find. It looked as if there was a makeshift cell, and it was put together at the last moment. The doctor could hear the muffled sounds of voices, but could not make out what was being said. Although groggy from being hit with the beam weapon, he was otherwise uninjured. Peterson still had his medical equipment and managed to modify his combat to that of a homing beacon. He hoped that the Tiberius and the commander would check all frequencies once they knew that he'd been beamed off the planet. All he could do now was wait and see what his captors wanted with him, and hope that his career in Starfleet would not come to an abrupt end. Ensign Manrique and Dr. Peterson braced themselves as the kidnapper's ship shook violently with each volley from the Tiberius. An armed Akamarian approached their cell and motioned for them to stand away from the force field. The doctor looked at Ensign Manrique. It was clear they wouldn't be able to take him, for he was armed to the tooth and heavily armored. They stood back, and the field was deactivated. You, the Akamarian gathered, pointed at the doctor with his phaser rifle. Come with me. Manrique stepped forward in defense of the doctor, but Peterson advised against it with the motion of his hand and a concerned look on his face. The man took Peterson to the medical bay, filled with wounded gatherers. All were clad in the same armor as the individual who escorted him there. Peterson presumed that they were injured in the assault on the surface and that they were the sole reason for his abduction. Get to work, shouted the escort, before shoving the doctor in the back with his rifle. On the bridge of the Akamarian ship, Chorgon barked out at his crew. What is our status? The guitar is decloaked. She's taken up a defensive position alongside the Starfleet vessel, replied the helmsman frantically. Matak, the second in command, whispered to his captain. Chorgon, we must leave now. We cannot take them both. You know what she'll do to us. You killed her son. She won't stop until we're all dead. Shut up, Chorgon shouted aloud as he paced the bridge. The Tiberius continued to pound them, rattling the crew as well as their equipment. Slek, get us out of here. Maximum warp. Fire the aft pulse cannons to disrupt their sensor arrays. Before the Tiberius and the Kataw had completely disabled the alien ship, a blinding pulse filled the bridge with Tiberius, and the ship was gone. What happened? barked Quinn as he rubbed his eyes. Koran's fingers ran across his panel. They've fired ion pulse cannons. Sensors are offline, Commander. Get them back, Lieutenant, Quinn ordered. The edge in his voice was now clearly evident. As Dr. Peterson surveyed the injured crew, he noted that many of the wounded were not seriously injured. However, one was bleeding internally and required immediate surgery. He recalled the words, Above all else, do no harm, then informed his captors of his needs. He asked to speak to his captor's leader so that he could find out what this was all about. At the least, he could learn the reason he may have end up dying. There was also an off chance that he could perhaps find a diplomatic way out of this situation without the loss of further life. The doctor hoped that Lieutenant Commander Savril could still hear his thoughts, even though he had not tried to reach her, and was not sure that his telepathic abilities would be strong enough at this distance. Luckily, the doctor still had the Iconian artifact in his possession. He hoped that, with its enhancing effect, 
It might allow him to reach her. He would use it and tell her to track his calm frequency so that they could find him. For now, all he could do was hope that the fates would be kind and that he would be able to live to see another day. He would continue to serve Starfleet to his best of abilities, which at the moment he could not say was his best or anywhere close to it. Acrid smoke rose from the consoles on Chorgon's bridge, filling the vicinity with white haze. His gruff voice snapped orders at the bridge crew as he sliced through the haze that had obscured his armored form. Status! he snarled over the railing from the higher command level. Matak, Chorgon's second in command, answered him promptly from below. Uh, we are safely away from the Starfleet vessel and the Qatar. He paused a moment as he gathered the courage to continue. I shouldn't have to remind you, Chorgon, that Corinth will not stop until she has satisfied her blood oath. Chorgon's hard glare eventually caused the second-in-command to avert his eyes and drop the subject. Matok had not been present when the raid on the settlement went wrong. He had no idea what really happened. Yet his constant nagging was darned annoying. It was worse than his late mother's persistent harassment. What Chorgon needed was a second officer, not an overbearing parent. I'm going to the medical bay to see how our new doctor is handling things. Find a sector where we can lay low. Some place where we can pick up more capable mercenaries. Contact someone who will purchase our spoils. Dr. Peterson worked frantically to save the injured Akamarian that lay stretched on the med table before him. The detained physician found himself conducting a delicate operation with rudimentary equipment. The kitty had brought on the away mission was not outfitted with the precision devices available back on the Tiberius. If it was, this surgery would not be as difficult or time-consuming. Chorgon strode into the crowded med bay, stepping over the injured as he made his way to where the doctor stood. Will he live? he inquired coarsely. I'm doing my best to ensure that he does. Who are you? the doctor asked without stopping to look at the man. What does it matter? Make sure he doesn't die. Chorgon turned to leave the med bay, but the doctor's next statement stopped him in his tracks. You're an Akamarian gatherer, the doctor sensed Chorgon's annoyance at the term he used. There was an awkward pause before the man replied, I'm a gatherer. Akamar Three is no longer our home, he growled. Well, gatherer, your Akamarian blood is composed of an odd composite of iron and copper-based blood chemistry. Your friend requires a transfusion if he's going to live. Take a seat. Peterson knew he could probably acquire the blood needed from any of the healthy gatherers injured in the attack, but he wanted a bit more information from the man who had just entered the medical bay. The seriously injured patient was important to him somehow. He was certain that the man would donate the blood, and because of it, he would become the doctor's captive audience for a few hours. Chorgon stared up at Peterson as the abducted Starfleet doctor prepared his arm for the transfusion. It's obvious why I'm here, the doctor began, and I'm guessing that you're the one who made that decision. Peterson pushed the needle roughly into Chorgon's arm as he finished the statement. Chorgon grimaced but did not react to the doctor's purposeful lack of bedside manner. Yes, he replied through clenched teeth. Then you're the leader of these cutthroats? The doctor looked up from his work and held the other's eyes for a moment before continuing with the transfusion. Cutthroats, he said with a chuckle. <laughs> Never heard that term. Chorgon continued to glare at the doctor as Peterson connected the crude transfusion device to the unconscious patient. 
A few minutes went by before the doctor continued his questioning. Is murder your primary occupation, or is it just something you like to do? Unwind on the weekends, hmm? Chorgon laughed at the doctor's last question. <laughs> You're a brave doctor. He eyed Peterson before continuing. No, killing is an unfortunate byproduct of my primary occupation. The doctor's face twisted in disgust, but he managed to keep his temper. It was my understanding that Akamar III's sovereign Maruk offered repatriation for these strange gatherers. The negotiations were mediated by a Starfleet captain. From what I've read, Picard was eventually successful, and the gatherers agreed to return home the same year. Chorgon's smile was replaced by a frown. Anger boiled out in his reply. Sovereign Maruk used Picard to lure us into a trap. Once he left, the so-called conservative Akamarians wiped out most of our clans. We're all that's left. We're gathering the best weapons and mercenaries to return the favor. Chorgon stated flatly. Sevril sat across from Quinn in his ready room. The remaining sensors are failing to track the alien ship's course. What's worse, Corinth's vessels suffered the same damage to primary and secondary sensor arrays. They cannot assist us in our search. Quinn sat back in the chair and rubbed the bridge of his nose as Sevril continued. As you know, Commander, the artifacts the Doctor and I have studied created a telepathic link between Margon and ourselves. I do not know how long this effect will last, but I have been receiving faint impressions from the Doctor. Quinn straightened his chair and leaned forward. What sort of impressions? he asked with renewed hope. Images, fragments of conversation. They are faint and infrequent at best. Perhaps I can help you enhance them. I'll ask Margon to join us. It's possible that he also senses the Doctor. The surgery, although difficult, went well, and the patient, who should have died, would soon make a full recovery. All that remained to do was to complete the final sutures. Dr. Peterson spoke to his captor and told him that he wished to help him in his plight. He believed that he had been treated unfairly. I asked Chorgon why the Klingon had taken a blood oath against him. Peterson told Chorgon that Tiberius had a JAG officer on board who could help if he could provide proof of his accusations. After an uncomfortable pause, he barked out an order to his second-in-command and then stated, I don't know why, but I believe you are a man of honor who is either extremely stupid or very brave. I'm not sure I know which, but uh, I'd prefer to think the latter is true. He gave the doctor the required information and his version of the raid that resulted in the blood oath. Peterson sent the information to the last known position of the Tiberius on a scrambled alpha channel, Priority 1, and hoped that the JAG officer was good at law as she was at diplomacy, for his very life hung in the balance. He then sat and pondered his predicament and hoped that the Tiberius received his message. He wondered if the commander could read or receive his telepathic thoughts as he reached out for her from so far away. He supposed that all he could do was be ready to act when the moment presented itself. The turbo lift doors opened and Counselor Margon stepped onto the bridge. He made his way to the ready room. The door chirped and the Commander Quinn said, Enter. Margon walked in to see Savril seated at the captain's desk. Okay, my head is swimming with surgery images and an impatient Vulcan, he grinned. Several gave him a look of disgust. I used my comm badge, Counselor, she stated bluntly. Yes, but I knew your call was coming ten seconds before it happened. 
He grinned again and sat down in the other chair next to Severil. So, we need to find the doctor, do we? he asked, looking at Quinn. Quinn smirked, amused by Margon's light-hearted mannerisms. Counselor, can you assist Severil in her search? Yes, as a matter of fact, if you ask her to scan for iron and copper-based blood signatures in the system with three M-class planets in sector... Um, um, he rubbed his nose ridge. The doctor overheard a navigation command from an officer on the ship he's being held on. Eight, Severil nodded. Sector eight. Margon chuckled. Yes, eight. <laughs> That's what it is. Find him, Commander. I can't handle much more of these bloody images in my head. She got up from the chair. If you will excuse me, gentlemen, I have a doctor to find. She walked out of the room and the doors hissed shut behind her. Matok interrupted Chorgon and Peterson timidly. We have reached Desikatu. Chorgon turned to the doctor. You're coming with us. Get your kid in order. Dr. Peterson frowned as he began to prepare his medkit for the unexpected expedition to the surface. Desiga 2 was in Sector 8, and if he wasn't mistaken, it was a hotbed of illegal activity. The Orion Syndicate often utilized Desiga 2's congested bars as a smokescreen. Elasai, Orion, Osarian, and Nausicaan interstellar pirates flanked their operation and camouflaged the Syndicate's transactions. If one was looking for mercenaries, illegal weapons, and fast ships, Desica too was definitely the place to hold and locate them in abundance. Unfortunately, it was also the best place to find a tragic end. The young boy of 11 or 12, clad in black armor, mumbled unconsciously on the table behind him. The doctor wondered if his young patient had been part of the raid on Altair III. Churgon's concern for the kid led Peterson to believe that he was related somehow. The doctor primed a hypospray and administered the sedative to the boy. As he watched his patient relax, he told himself that he would see to it that the child would no longer be involved in Chorgon's plots. How Peterson would accomplish this task? That would have to be determined at a later day. Ensign Manrique paced his holding cell anxiously as a group of gatherers entered the brig. Stand away from the containment field, one of them growled. Manrique stood back and balled his fist in preparation. The field was deactivated, and Chorgon entered the small room. You're on my ship because I require men capable of killing. Have you ever taken a life? Johnny considered Chorgon's question. He hadn't had to kill anyone, but he was confident if he had to, he could. The ancient determined that a lie was the best response, so Johnny answered with a macho... Yeah, uh, what are you doing? Writing a book? Churgon stood a step forward and sized up the young officer. Johnny stood his ground and maintained eye contact. Churgon saw this as a challenge and swung his fist hard at Manrique's face. The young officer stepped back with his right leg and parried the attack with an excellent left forearm. He then quickly countered the attack by stepping forward again, sliding his right leg behind Churgon's while simultaneously hitting the armored Akamarian in the throat with a falcon strike. Chorgon fell flat on his back, gasping for air on the floor. The other Akamarians rushed Manrique, but Chorgon stopped them from punishing the Starfleet officer for his bold display. Between his labored gasps for air, he laughed aloud. Two gatherers hurried to help him off the floor, 
but he waved them off and stood to face no, Manrique no. once more. <sighs> You'll make an excellent member of my crew. He turned to Matok. Give him some armor. He'll be coming with us. Have you located a customer? Jorgon asked Matok as they strode through the corridors leading to the transporter bay. Yes, he's waiting for you at the Brintec bar, replied the second-in-command. The transport crafts have been loaded with the freight and outfitted with additional weaponry and hardware in the event that you need them. Tell him I'm expecting the payment in full. Chorgon entered the transport bay where a small contingent of gatherers awaited his arrival. Dr. Peterson and Ensign Manrique were among them, clad in the same black Akmerian armor as their captors. Two of the gatherers' transport crafts landed in the prearranged docking bay. Once they secured their freight, they headed for the coordinates that their contact had given them. The Brintec bar was dark, smoky, and filled with the voices of various patrons, most of which were Alasse, Orion, Osarian, and Nausicaan. Several Nausicaans looked up from their dom game as they walked in, and Orion's slave girls danced around the room to a rhythmic beat of drums. They whirled around the group of gatherers whose tough exteriors began to melt into dull-witted grins and glassy-eyed stares. One particularly beautiful Orion slid her seductive green arms around the doctor's shoulders and then wrapped her sheer veil around his waist. Her devilish smile kept his eyes as she pulled him gently towards the center of the crowded bar. Before he wandered too far, Chorgon grabbed him by the arm and hauled him away from the trance. Get back, he growled at the slave girls. They danced away as the group of Akamarians muttered to one another in disappointment. Desica II was not unlike other planets that the Doctor visited in previous off-world excursions. The smell of dry blood and the sweat intermingled with the dense blue-gray smoke that filled the air of the streets. It was a mix of haphazard display of various market merchants competing against each other for elusive gold bars of Latin that allowed them to eke out a barely human existence in Earth terms. He surveyed his surroundings, wondering how things could have gone so wrong. How did he end up in the situation that he found himself in? He checked and found that his makeshift transponder was still working, and he hoped it, along with his latent telepathic ability, would be enough to make it through another day. The doctor kept reminding himself that if he wasn't a doctor, he may not be around to be having this conversation with himself, and decided he was lucky to still be alive. As long as he was still alive, there was still a chance he could get out of the situation in one piece, hopefully. Anson Bandana knew little of what was going on, but he knew it was dangerous. His first real live space battle experience was over. He wished there was more to do, but he knew his place was in astrometrics, and now it was time for some R&R. His quarters seemed huge, far bigger than they'd been on the space station. He sat down to read some classic Earth fiction, The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Wow, they had some pretty crazy ideas about the future back in the 20th century. It was difficult for him to concentrate on the book when he knew that his crewmates were in a dangerous situation and that at any moment the ship might be attacked again. Ensign Bandana walked to the replicator. Chocolate egg cream, Brooklyn style. He finished his drink and left his quarters for five forward. He really hadn't gotten the opportunity to meet his fellow crewmates yet, and this was just as good a time as any, he thought. In the captain's ready room on the USS Tiberius, 
Several walked out of the room and the doors hissed shut behind her. Margon stared at Quinn for a moment. Is there anything I can do for you, Counselor? Quinn asked. Margon smiled. How do you do it, sir? I mean, how do you deal with all the other voices and images in your head? I have only two other people's thoughts in my head and I can barely handle that. <laughs> Couldn't imagine thousands of voices. I'd go crazy. Quinn laughed. <laughs> well, my dear Counselor... I was not always in control of my telepathy. It has taken many years of hard work to filter out the clutter. Margon stood. Well, I'm glad this is only temporary. They both laughed as Margon exited the captain's ready room. As soon as the doors closed, Quinn's expressions changed. He sat down in his chair and looked concerned, and started to wonder if they would ever find their missing crewman. you have it. Uh, this is uh, part one of uh, <laughs> a very long RPG game that we've been playing on the forums at www.treksinsci-fi.com. Nathan Moyer has done the editing, uh, put all the sound effects in with the help of Jen, who sent us the sound effects and various things. Um, several of us um, from the forums voiced the voices for it. And we hope you really enjoyed it. Now, it's a little bit difficult with the World Wide Web uh, with us actually not talking with each other. So you'll notice that some of the the, uh, names were mispronounced throughout the thing or different things happened and characters kind of changed over time. But that's okay. It's the fun of it all, and we're having a great time doing this together. We really urge you to go to the treksinsci-fi.com website, click on the forums, register, and play Season 3 with us right now. We're having a great time with that. Uh, what you've been listening to is Season 2 and Part 1 of Season 2. Hope you really enjoyed it. And uh, Nathan, you want to say anything? Thank you, all my fans. Thank you, all my fans. That was good. Bless you, and uh, have a great day. <laughs>